This is a Colored Pencil Podcast, session number 199. Welcome to Sharpened Artist, a Colored Pencil Podcast, where we discuss in detail all things in and around colored pencils and the colored pencil artist. And now your hosts... Lisa Clow and John Middick. Hello, my name is John Middick of SharpenedArtist.com, and I'm joined, as usual, by my co-host, Lisa Clow of Lockery Fine Art. Lisa, how are you today? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing never better. This is a show about colored pencil where we discuss anything and everything surrounding this medium that we love so much. So what are we talking about today? Today, we are going to be solving some colored pencil problems we often hear from students. Yeah, so let's jump right in here. Number one, it looks like crayon. Okay, first off, this is a good thing, a good sign to be able to recognize that it is looking like a crayon. If you're not recognizing that, then uh, sometimes that takes a little bit of time to develop your eye and to see a completed colored pencil piece that has full saturation of the pigment on the paper or surface that you're using. But if you're noticing a lot of white showing through in your piece, then that could mean a couple of things that you either need to keep going, need to add more layers to it, or often what I'll see with a new artist is they're raking the pencil across the paper, their particular stroke that they're using. They're doing that too quickly. And they're just moving that pencil around too quickly, almost the equivalent of scribbling, rather than being careful about the stroke. And I recommend a linear stroke. Now, you can use whatever stroke you want. You can use ovals and any, any number of other ways of handling the stroke on the paper. But it needs to be slow and intentional if you're using a traditional cotton-type paper, something like that, an absorbent-type surface. And if you're not using OMS or anything like that, you have to be slower with it and you have to be more careful and deliberate about laying that pencil layer down. And if you build up enough layers and you're slowly moving towards harder pressure, you're starting out with light pressure, then you're going to have more saturation of the paper and you got to keep a sharp pencil. That's the other thing. Yeah. And that I found recently really depends on the type of paper you're using too. Certain papers are going to require an even sharper tip than other ones, like the pastel mat that I've recently been using. That I don't have to have a sharp pencil at all. But it's it's a completely different way to work, which is in a coming up in a future colored pencil podcast episode. Yeah, I can't wait for that. But the other thing with the crayon is that there are just not enough layers. You're you've got to add lots and lots and lots of layers to get past that crayon look, to get past that. And like John was saying, the scribbling, working in, in small oval motion with the the pencil, that is really going to make a big difference in how you're overlapping. You don't want these harsh start and stop points where you shift direction with your pencil. You can that it, well, it looks like scribbling. Um, but mm-hmm. if you work in an oval and overlap, you can avoid having those harsh start and stop points, and that's going to help too. Yeah, let me just say a quick word about that. I, and I. If somebody's brand new and they're starting out and that they don't really know how to hold the pencil, um, it makes a big difference. And they don't know which stroke to use. I recommend the linear stroke, and I've had a lot of success teaching 
uh, hundreds of students how to do that, and it works really well. But I do know that it's very, very popular for um, many colored pencil artists to do those ovals. And if that's something that you're already doing, then I don't recommend you changing from that. You just stick with it if that's working. And just to explain very quickly what a linear stroke is, it's just a line. That's all it is. So instead of making little ovals, you're doing you're you're creating a line with your pencil mark. And a lot of people will re- refer to this as hatching and cross hatching. The only difference in this linear stroke that I teach is that you make them very very tight. So there's no white between those layers, and we go over that in depth in the Beginner's Color Pencil course, and we talk about a single color fade, multicolor fades, and it creates total saturation, and when it's done correctly, and whenever you learn how to do that from the start, then you avoid this problem altogether. So number two on our list, the paper tears when removing the tape, and I've heard this no matter what kind of paper somebody is using, someone's torn the that when they've taped it down along the edges onto their drawing board. So one huge tip, if you're using masking tape, if you can find a low-tack, ideally a low-tack acid-free masking tape, you can get this from art supply stores. If you've watched my videos, you've seen me use the black tape. That's what that one is. And it's acid-free, which is pretty big deal all on its own, but it tends to not have as much tack, so it's easier to remove. The other thing is when you remove that tape, you want to pull away from your drawing slowly, very slowly. Pull the tape away from the drawing, not towards it, because if you pull towards the drawing inside the work, you have a tendency to tear those outer edges, which are going to be a little bit more weak anyway, and you can rip into the artwork. So tear slowly away, and I can't stress the slowly part enough, away from your work. The other thing is you can take that piece of tape before you even tape your artwork down and dab it on maybe your jeans or or pants or whatever you're wearing. That'll pick up some of the fibers from your clothing and help it not to, to stick as much. And a huge, huge tip, if it is really stuck on there, take a hairdryer and lightly heat the tape and that'll help the adhesive to let go. You don't want to leave things taped down for too long. That's a big thing. If you've got something that you've left taped for months, and I've done this, I've been super guilty of this, where I'll draw something, I won't remove it because I know I need to get a good photo, I forget about it, and a few months later realize that's still taped to one of my drawing boards. The tape seems to become more and more adhesive over time when when it's been at that amount of time. So I'm more likely to tear and have issues there. And that's where the hairdryer really comes in handy. Number three, OMS doesn't do anything or it makes my colors look very, very dull. Few things could be happening here. You may not have enough layers built up or you may be using OMS too quickly. That is to say you're using it too early in the drawing process. You haven't built up enough layers yet. The other thing you can do is after you have um, because it's melting down, the, you have to think about what it's doing. So OMS is breaking down uh, that pigment layer and it it's actually going to make everything vanish, right, if you use too much of it. So if, you're, uh, if you've got enough pigment on your surface before you use the OMS, then you're going to be better off. But then don't forget this, that you go back over it. You go back over that area with pencil layers after you're done. And this is the reason why I always recommend you use a test sheet of paper. You're doing test swatching over beside your project because you want to see what that looks like. Whenever you've built up this layer, this so many layers, you know, the, a, a blue and then a red on top and a, a different color, you know, you, you're mixing all these colors together. And then when you're using OMS, it's going to change the way that that looks. So you want to make sure you know what that looks like before you use it on your project and then go back over it. 
with another pencil layer or two or three or four or ten, whatever. <laughs> but I hope that helps. That that seems to be some of the biggest things that I've seen. Yeah. The next on our list, I keep rushing my work. This one for me, because this was a huge problem for me quite a few years ago when I was doing a lot of pet portraits. I would spend 45 minutes on something and expect it to look like something that I spent eight hours on. I'm, I'm speaking in graphite, so it's a little bit faster. Well, a lot faster than colored pencil. Typically. You're speaking in graphite, but and I'm I understood. I know graphite. <laughs> <laughs> but I would spend 45 minutes on the on a headshot of a dog and expect it, not understand, like, I mean, it looked good. It looked like the dog, It and I could sell them for $60, so I wasn't charging for a photorealistic piece. But at the same time, it wasn't what I wanted it to look like. And it finally hit. How do I change this? You know what? Let's try spending eight hours. I gave myself a time that you are going to spend a minimum of this amount of time. It was night and day, the difference. You would never know it was even created by the same artist. If you can give yourself, or this is what I found for myself and for many of my students I've worked with, I'm going to spend this many days or this many hours or, you know, whatever time frame. I found if I went into it knowing that, I wasn't as likely to rush. And then for each painting or drawing session, I sit down, I say, okay, it's six o'clock right now. I'm going to work until eight o'clock and then take a break. Well, ideally take a few more breaks and stretch your legs and such. But let's say a big break at eight o'clock. I'm going to work for two hours. Then I'm going to come back at 8.30 and work until this time. If I gave myself time periods, this is when I'm sitting down. This is the time I have dedicated to it. I was more likely to sit still and get the work done because I already said in my head, this is what I'm putting into it. If I sit down and go, okay, I've got the night to draw. I'm going to start drawing. I found that I kept getting distracted and I was rushing through things because I'd think of something else I was going to do instead. And I, I, I'm, my brain's all over the place. So by giving myself those time limits, that really helped me to stop rushing the work. All right, next, I can't get the whiskers or fine lines or highlights or in the hair or whatever else I'm drawing to really pop or to really stand out. How do I, what do I do? Do I reserve that area? How, how do I handle this? So there's a few options that you could do with this. I mean, you can always reserve that area. You can always use masking fluid to protect the area, or you can just be careful and not draw in that area. You can also draw in it with white. That way, if you do remove anything, maybe with a battery-operated eraser, if you've built up a lot of layers and you feel like you need that to come back to a whiter or a lighter area, then you've got that white layer as a barrier protecting it underneath. You could use a stylus. Um, and Lisa and I, I think, really like this last method quite a bit, which is uh, using the brush and pencil products, colored pencil, titanium white, and the touch-up texture. I re recently used that on a commission piece, and oh my goodness, it just made such a difference. Uh, did some little pearls on a, on a dress, and it just made them really pop out. The other thing you want to look out for is you have to make sure the entire piece is balanced, that there aren't competing values. And so if you've got things that are bright that shouldn't be bright, then those values need to be darker. That is to say that you've got to make sure that the white areas that you want, if there's an area that you want to be very bright, doesn't have to be white, but it has to be lighter than the other areas, that has to be relative to the entire piece. And so you have to make sure that everything else is darker than that area. That's something that I think you develop your eye over time doing that and just practice. 
The other thing I want to throw in about the brush and pencil products, we've got a video you that it's hard to explain in a podcast. I've got a video showing you exactly how to use that. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. But you want to watch out too, because something that I often hear people want to use to get those white highlights or bright highlights is to use a gel pen. That's It depends on, I guess, what your goals are. Those aren't really archival. They're not intended to go over a wax or oil-based pencil. Put it on top of watercolor pencils, no problem. You put it on top of wax and oil, and you're going to have some issues with the archival quality of your work. That's why I like the brush and pencil products because it is intended for colored pencil. It's not going to scrape or rub off over time or cause problems with yellowing or any of the problems that you can run into with actual gel pens. Next on our list is number six, my work looks like a cartoon when I want it to look more realistic. Now, this can come from a couple of problems. The first is just having your foundation layer or your foundation drawing not drawn correctly. If you're jumping into the colored pencil portion before your drawing is perfectly accurate, that alone is going to make the work look fairly cartoony. The other thing is, and one of the biggest ones, is not getting your values correct. Just going, okay, I'm drawing a tiger, so I'm going to shade all of this in with the perfect color of orange. That's not how it works. It's your values. Are your darks dark enough or, and your lights light enough? There, when you're, we'll use the tiger as an example. You're going to fade to magenta, different oranges, browns, red tones. You've got so many colors that you're going to use in there depending on the shadows and the highlights to make that look three-dimensional, to make it look realistic. If you're just drawing a portrait, finding, you know, I'm going to use light flesh because that seems to be the right color for this person. And I'm going to do that all over the entire face. If that's the only thing that you're doing, it's going to look like a cartoon. It's going to look very, very flat. If you want your work to look three-dimensional and more realistic, pay attention to those values. Get your lights lighter, your darks darker, and just the shading. It will make all the difference in the world in bringing your work from that flat stage, flat cartoon to something that is more realistic. The other big thing is don't outline everything. No lines. Think edges instead. So that that really uh, lends itself to making things look very realistic whenever you get rid of those lines. All right, next, pencils keep breaking. And how do I avoid this? I have a problem every time that I go to sharpen my pencil or if I'm using the pencil, it's it's breaking. couple of things here. Um, first, it's going to matter which pencils that you're using. And if you're using Prismacolor Premier, then I would recommend not using a helical type of sharpener. Uh, use the little awful sharpeners that I can't stand and wish they had never been born. They're called Coom. I don't like <laughs> I don't like them except for Prismacolor Premier. Um, if you're on the road traveling, then they're nice because you can carry them with you quickly. But otherwise, yeah, if you're using a better pencil like uh, Luminance or Polychromos or uh, Pablo's or a lot of other pencils, then I would recommend a helical pencil sharpener. Derwent Super Point's a great one. The Carl Angel 5 is another good one. Uh, there's some good electric pencil sharpeners as well that work really well with all of those. You've got to pay attention to the angle of the uh, pencil as you're laying it down on the paper. As you're creating your stroke, what angle are you holding that pencil? If it's very, very vertical then it shouldn't be breaking as long as you're keeping a light touch. But that's difficult to do, and you have a tendency with a vertical position of the pencil to bear down. And so if you hold the pencil about midway down the shaft and then you rest your wrist on the surface, use a light touch to the paper, then typically you're not going to break that pencil. You've got to uh, learn to use a very, very light touch. That's one of the biggest things I can tell you. 
Yeah, and it, it really does just depend on the pencil. I mean, how I'm going to handle a Prismacolor is going to be very different, or even like the Derwent drawing pencils, those are very soft, is going to be very different than how I handle a Polychromos. If I've got a pencil breaking in the sharpener with a Polychromos, that right there tells me my sharpener is dull. I need to either change the blade or get a new one. Now, unlike John, I love the Coom sharpeners. I'm a huge fan of those little handheld. Oh, I love them. That's the oh. main sharpener that I use. Wow. But um, and I don't have any problems with them. The, but if something mm. starts, to, I have had a few that were bad that right from the start. So that is a risk with those, I guess. But uh, they're you know a couple of dollars. If a pencil breaks, which is with polychromos or luminance, I know it's time to change my blade or to change the sharpener out with. Prismacolor, I have to handle that very differently. They're going to break no matter what. And I mean, they're, they're a bit more of a challenge. So with those, I had the best luck using electric sharpeners and not sharpening to a really fine point. So you need to know your pencil. Is this one prone to breakage like Prismacolor or even the Derwent drawing? And the Derwent drawing, they're just going to be more prone to breaking because it's a very, very soft lead. Prismacolor has some quality control issues, but yeah, the electric sharpeners, I've had re- much better luck with Prismacolor and then the handheld ones I really like for pretty much every other pencil that I have. If every pencil is breaking, then that ought to be a clue that your uh, sharpener um, is the culprit. But the other thing about the differences in the Coom and the Helical is um, if you're using the Coom, you've got to keep sharpening it over and over and over again. If you just do a little twist of your pencil every now and then with a pencil that's been sharpened with a Helical Blade pencil sharpener, then you're going to keep that point on the pencil a lot longer. That's that's the thing that I always go back to with the reason why I don't like the, the Coom. Uh, pencil sharpeners. The the point tapers much too quickly for me. But yeah, they are very cheap, uh, but they perform like it too. The next common question or common problem, I should say, not question, but I'm overwhelmed by all the details. I don't even know where to start. One of the things that I typically do, especially for students who are very frustrated when they look at a piece and like, oh my gosh, there's so much. I take a piece of paper and cut one or two square inches out of it and do the same thing for um, an, a second piece of paper. One is the, going to go over my reference photo. One is going to go over the my actual artwork. And that is the only area I am having to focus on right now. It makes it so much less, well, less overwhelming to have just this little area I'm focused on. When you look at the pieces in, in its entirety, it's easy to go, I don't know where to start. There's too many details. I can't do this. It's too much. But if you can break it down into one small, you know, one or two square inches, it makes it way easier. And if you can put a piece of paper, if that isn't working for you, just keeping in your head, this is the only area I'm working on. If you can put a little square around, you know, a a clean and acid free, ideally piece of paper on top of your work, just focus on that one little area. I found that it makes it just so much easy to get started and to tackle those tiny details. That's a really good idea. Um, another thing you could do as well, if you do choose something that is overwhelming, that has so many details and you're just starting out, then I would recommend maybe switching to something a little more simple to begin with. If it's too overwhelming and you don't know where to start, that can be overwhelming to a point where um, it's just difficult to even get through it. It's a, it's a slog the entire time. But another thing you can do is... Boil it down, do some thumbnail sketching first, very small sketches in graphite first to figure out where those values are. Start with what you know and then gravitate towards areas that you don't know. Put it across the room, look at it from far away, you'll see larger objects. Transform those shapes in your mind. Is it a circle, square, uh, rectangle, whatever? And look at it like that. And don't think about the details. Uh, squint your eyes. Make them, you know, see it blurry, that kind of thing. That always also helps sometimes. Okay, how do I know when I'm finished? 
So you've got to have a goal in mind before you ever start. You've got to say it may be if you're using Photoshop or some other editor and you're saying, okay, this is what I want it to look like by the time I'm done. Then you know where you're wanting to end up. You've got to figure out and plan before you ever start. Does it look like the way you envisioned whenever you started out? When you look at it on its own, does it does it meet your standard? Does it meet whatever it is that you thought you would be able to accomplish? And we, we can always find problems with everything that we finished. I, I At least I can. I'm not perfect at all. And so I always look at my, my piece and I'm like, ah, I could have done this different. Or, man, man, I maybe I should rework that area. But there's always going to be those areas. But you have to figure out what is done to you. And if you've processed through the drawing the correct way, the way that you uh, intended to from the very beginning, and you had the goal in mind of how you wanted it to look by the time you're done, then be done with it. Don't just keep going back to it over and over again for months and months and months, trying to rework areas. Just learn from those mistakes, if you want to call them that, and just say, next time I'm going to uh, work at this particular uh, spot more, or that I've learned this from this piece. I'll carry that with me next time and improve in that area. I I typically tell people, if you're asking, am I done yet? You're not sure if you're done, then you're probably not done. Go spend another hour or two. You you should know when you're done. Like John said, you have that goal in mind. And if you're not sure if you're done, then put it away for a while. Come back. Spend another hour or two. That's actually a really good one because I I do ask students that a lot of times. I say, do you think you're done? (laughs) It's a good question, you know, because if they don't think so, then they're not because it's perspective. If they if they can't see something, it doesn't matter if a teacher can point something out. If they can't see that, they're not going to be able to interpret what you're saying, really. They can't yeah. progress through and and do something that they don't understand. Yeah. Last on our list, number 10, I don't know which color to use. I need a list of colors for every project. I don't know which colors to choose. This is probably one of the most asked questions I And which I one get. did you use right there in? Yeah. Spot number two minutes and 38 seconds. (laughs) Yes. Here's the thing. The way that we work, we're layering color on top of color on top of color. There's no formula. This is not cooking where I can say, you know, one cup of this, two tablespoons of this. It doesn't work that way. You're going to have that scratch piece of paper that John was talking about earlier where you can test what happens if I put this color over this color? What result am I going to get there? When you're looking at color, it's not even about the color so much. The color's not the big deal there. Like I was saying before with cartoony work. If you choose the perfect color of orange for your tiger and that's all you use on the whole tiger, it looks like a cartoon. It's about your values. Are your darks dark enough? Your lights light enough? That is what you want to focus on. Color, I mean, if you're at a stage where you're saying, I don't know what color to use, then you're probably more of a beginner and color isn't the thing you want want to focus on right now. And I know that sounds backwards. Mm-hmm. That sounds like the opposite of what you should be worrying about. But yeah, right but now it's, it's not. lights light enough. Dark's dark enough. I could make my tiger with all shades of purple and still have him look realistic if my values are right. He'll just look like he's under purple lighting. But getting your values, light's light enough, dark's dark enough. And if you depend too much, this is one of those things that happens a lot. People will start with beginner tutorials and they stay with beginner tutorials and they want their hand held throughout the entire process for the rest of their life. If you don't move on to choosing, I mean, the very basics of draw your own work. And if that means tracing the work, that's fine. But don't depend 
on somebody else to trace it for you. You're not going to learn and improve your drawing skills if you're doing that. You want to learn to trace your own reference photos. And if tracing is your your goal, you know, what you work with, or you can freehand it either way, whatever you're comfortable with. But you need to trace the photo yourself, not trace somebody else's tracing. You're not learning from that. And you need to learn to choose your colors. If you look at something and you're like, hey, that looks green. Do a little scribble on your, your color swatch with whatever green you chose. If that green doesn't look good to you, put that green down, choose another green until you find the green that works. This is how you're going to progress. Right. And I don't say this. I mean, it's a common com question with my online tutorials. I think people think I'm just not giving the information because I'm being lazy or something. And that's not it at all. It's because I know I'm holding you back by providing too much information. And even if I did, let's say I told you what colors I'm using, because there were a few times I was writing down and keeping track of which pencils I used in a piece. There's 60 pencils or, you know, different colors. It's like, just assume I use my entire set of polychromos and half my luminance. J just go ahead and assume that. And you may not even have the same pencils. That doesn't mean you can't get the same results by using slightly different colors that are close enough. Close enough really is good enough as long as your values are there. Dark's dark enough. Light's light enough. You should be able to look at something and go, hey, that's green. If you can't, then we need to back up a few steps further and work on a little bit more basics with color, I guess, um, and definitions, That which sounds harsh, but seriously, I've been teaching, and I say this all the time, I've been teaching since 1999. Trust me, you get to a point where beginning lessons and beginner things are going to hold you back if you won't make any choices on your own, choices about your color, choices about which lines are helpful to you when you draw out your initial, you know, if you're tracing a, your reference photo or such. You don't want to have your hand forever hold, hold and have somebody else doing too much of the work for you, or you will forever be a beginner. This could actually be another show, really. I yeah. Think. Well, if I just knew what that color was, that's what makes a realistic piece. No, it, it is not. It's It's actually way down the list on what may make something realistic looking. And the other the other thing I just want to add to that is because I I got this even recently in uh, my portrait course someone was asking, you said you use this color on and I've tried to stay away from naming the specific color of the luminance color that I'm perhaps using. And they talked to me about, you know, you said you use this particular color. I don't think you did. I think you used this other one. I said, "What? You're probably right." You might be right about that, you know, and it, it doesn't matter. It's more about the value and the way that that looks. How is it looking overall? So if you're starting out and this is very confusing to you and you're like, well, I just don't know color theory at all. Here's an easy way to start gaining some mastery over color theory. Look for the local color. Look for the predominant hue. When I look at that, what is the color? If I look at a red shirt. I'm going to say it's red, right? If I look at the sky, it's going to be blue. That's the local color. And then say I've got some shadows then within that area that that is the local color. So if I have some shadows in a blue area, what is the opposite of blue? Well, I'm going to use orange. So I'm going to that that's a good way to start. Start using the opposite colors to create shadows and to create variations within the local color. And that will help you quite a bit to start learning color theory. And then this will become more second nature to you over time. All right. So if you enjoy the show, consider leaving us a rating or a review or tell someone else about the show. Make sure you subscribe to the show. And this is a weekly podcast. So we'll talk to you again next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. All the show notes can be found at www.sharpenedartist.com.